As we come to the end of the pandemic, a big question is, how will some of the lessons we learned carry forward? When it comes to housing, the events of the past year and a half have drawn focus on the racial inequities in the housing market and how those inequities have far-reaching and long-term impacts. And those inequities are not new, and they're not accidental, as much research has shown. Uh, And as we in the industry look forward past the pandemic, it's important to do so with a clear understanding of how we got to where we are today. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. And today on the show, we're going to look in depth at the history of disparities in the housing market, how they happened, and what considerations are being made to address them today. There's a lot to cover on this topic, and it's really connected to so many of the other episodes we've done here on the podcast. We're joined today by Jacob Faber, who is an associate professor at NYU's Robert F. Wagner School of Public Service, and he also holds a joint appointment in their sociology department. His research and teaching focuses on spatial inequality, including rapidly changing roles of numerous institutional actors facilitating the reproduction of racial and spatial inequality. So Jacob, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So with such a complex topic, right, there's so many ways to start the conversation. Um, so maybe you can give some advice for, wh- for where we start. Well, I know you and Steve like to begin some of your episodes with, um, with a number, so maybe we can, we can start there. And uh, there are so many ways to measure um, housing inequality. And when we think about race more broadly in America, especially over the past century, typically think of progress. And we, you know, we certainly have made progress, but, but housing is one aspect of American life where that narrative is, uh, is murky at best. So in 1900, white uh, homeownership was around 40%, while about 21% of, of Black Americans owned homes. So about a 19% gap between whites and Blacks. And in 2019, um, white homeownership was uh, about 74%, and Black homeownership was uh, was 48%. Um, and so the gap, uh, the homeownership gap increased to 26%. So this is one place where Kind of more unequal than we were at the start of the uh, of the twentieth century, and uh, along those lines, um, segregation is also something that we typically think of as something that's past. Um, but America is still quite segregated. People still live in neighborhoods where neighbors are are, are members of the same race. So the typical white American lives in a neighborhood that's about 78% white. Uh, A typical black or Latino American lives in a a neighborhood that's about half black or Latino, respectively. And a typical Asian American lives in a neighborhood that's about a quarter Asian. Um, So these these inequalities in access to homeownership and access to, to neighborhoods are still quite dramatic. Those, those certainly are striking numbers and really sobering to think that the things are as, as they are today when, when, and have gotten worse over, over a century in some ways. So, uh, um, you know, as we think about this, um, you know, we think about neighborhoods, we think about cities. Um, are, there, are there cities that, that 
you would highlight um, uh, to help people understand uh, even deeper? Yeah, and it's another kind of interesting and, and for, for many surprising reality of segregation is that when we measure segregation, that the the cities and metro areas with the highest levels of of, re, of residential segregation, for example, between Black and white Americans tend to be in in the north, and and specifically in what people refer to as the as the Rust Belt. So places like Detroit, Milwaukee, New York City, Chicago, Philadelphia, Cleveland. That these are all highly highly segregated uh, metropolitan areas. So maybe you know, since since you are you're based in New York, and I know, and I know you've done some work on on New York. Can we take a closer look there? Sure. So, um, you know, New York City uh, on its face is um, an incredibly diverse place. There are dozens and dozens of languages spoken here. Pretty much every ethnic community you can imagine living in the city, somewhere around 40 percent of uh, of the city is is foreign born or the child of somebody who is foreign born. So there's incredible diversity um, here in New York. But uh, even in the city there uh, are pretty strong um, racial lines between neighborhoods. That if you kind of look at a map of uh, of the entire city and the, the race and ethnicity of people who live in each neighborhood, you can see really dense concentrations of of African Americans in Central Brooklyn and southeastern Queens and uh, and northern Manhattan. The bottom half of Manhattan is largely white and Asian, um, and then there are very isolated Latino neighborhoods in the South Bronx and also in, in parts of Brooklyn. And the the picture gets even more dramatic if you zoom out a little bit to take in the suburbs that that surround New York City as well as uh, as Newark in New Jersey. That there are even sharper lines of residential segregation by race in the uh, in the suburbs. So let, let's. Um, I'd like to understand better how we got to this point. So you said you know over the last hundred years or so, right? Things have gotten worse. Uh, right? The numbers are showing that. So what were some of the drivers of that? Yeah, this is a really great question and an area of of burgeoning research among people who study racial inequality and segregation. So. To get at the kind of root of today's racial geography, the kind of patterns of residential segregation, it is useful to go back to the New Deal. Um, and we often think about the New Deal as an employment crisis, and it certainly was. Millions of people were without income or with minimal income. But uh, the New Deal, uh, the Great, uh, the Great Depression, excuse me, was um, was also a housing crisis. About half of mortgage debt was in default, and so part of the the New Deal, this suite of federal policies designed to save the American economy, um, a large part of the New Deal was uh, was housing policies, including the Homeowners Loan Corporation uh, or HOLC, uh, the Federal Housing Administration (FHA), and uh, and then the GI Bill for returning veterans after World War II. Uh, and these pr- these programs were massive. By 1972, the Federal Housing Administration helped about 11 million households buy homes. The uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation, in its first couple of years, um, helped one in 10 homes in in America. 
Um, so these programs were very were very influential um, in the market, but they also helped create the American Homeownership Society through the institutionalization of the long-term uniform payment mortgage. This, like, you know, the, the 30-year fixed rate uh, financial instrument didn't really exist before these programs uh, came to be. And unfortunately, these programs were designed with segregationist intent that you know, fewer than 1% of those FHA, those 11 million FHA loans went to African-Americans. These policies encouraged the process and practice of redlining, which is the exclusion of communities of color from mortgage finance and housing opportunity. They also encouraged and in some places required the use of racially restrictive covenants where homeowners had to declare that they would never sell their property to a person of color. Often Jewish Americans were also included or excuse me, excluded from those covenants. And so as these homeownership opportunities were opening up for, for white Americans because of these massive federal programs, we were same time building segregated public housing. Um, we were using highway construction to segregate cities and we were displacing um, hundreds of thousands of people, disproportionately people of color, through through the process of uh, of urban renewal. These policies, you know, as a whole, of course, didn't invent racism in real estate, but they institutionalized it and pumped you know, a, a tremendous amount of federal investment into it, uh, systematically limiting opportunities for homeownership for for people of color. And so, for over generations, this hold people and investment out of cities and into predominantly white suburbs while limiting opportunities for wealth accumulation for people of color. And although there were really important policy victories in the civil rights era to make explicit discrimination illegal, these victories, these policies did nothing to undo the damage that had already been done by this intentional segregation. We still had people living in communities that were segregated by policy. The inheritance of this inequality over generations contributed to a growing racial wealth gap. And this culminated in the subprime lending boom and foreclosure crises, which were you know, equity stripping and what some people referred to as reverse redlining disproportionately harmed uh, communities of color. And now with the, um, the COVID pandemic, um, we face another economic and and housing crisis that's going to disproportionately impact people of color. Uh, it, it's surprising to think back on the history and and get this perspective in some ways. But the the details, as you said, are 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 very clear. And as you said, there there would be literal you know um, text uh, in contracts saying who you could and could not sell your mortgage to, and and that was. Red, you know what was driving the red line, and there's there's actually, you know, other things beyond that too, right? In the way that the even the the way neighborhoods were characterized was also explicit. Is that right? In in some of the, uh, you know, documentation from the Hulk or others. Absolutely. So um, again, the Homeowners Loan Corporation or or Hulk or HOLC was uh, the first of these large federal policies, and one of the things that Hulk did was it hired appraisers, real estate appraisers, um, to go to hundreds of cities across the country and grade the lending risk in 
different neighborhoods in those cities. And these appraisers gave grades, lending risk grades to these neighborhoods that were uh, went from A being the best grade to B, C, D, and D being the, wor- uh, the lowest grade, the highest risk. Um, and these grades were color-coded, uh, and they made these maps that uh, were, were called residential security maps. And the D neighborhoods, the lowest rated neighborhoods, were uh, were colored red. And so this is where the term redlining came from, that for kind of generations after these uh, these maps were created, um, you know, housing opportunity was far harder to come by in these neighborhoods that were deemed high lending risk by Hulk appraisers in the late 1930s. And we know from historical records that while these appraisers cared about things like quality of housing and the built environment, that they were absolutely obsessed with the presence of African-Americans, that even a single Black person living in a neighborhood could earn that neighborhood uh, the lowest grade. Um, and we see this in the, in the appraisal documents that, uh, that these appraisers use to make these residential security maps. Um, and this process of redlining uh, expanded in the, the Federal Housing Administration and the GI Bill and was, of course, picked up and mirrored by, by private lenders as well. Much of my recent work has focused on this question of how have these maps that were made again in the, in the late 1930s, um, how did these appraisals impact racial inequality over time, including to today. And I am one of many scholars who, is, who are investigating this question. My own work has shown that the places where these maps were drawn became far more segregated over time and pretty much stayed that way, that the, that the effect of the Homeowners Loan Corporation's appraisals uh, has not changed over the past uh, 50 or 60 years, that these, uh, this kind of the increase in segregation has uh, sustained over time. Other researchers have shown that the neighborhood level, the housing, the kind of local housing quality was deteriorated over time in part because, again, it was hard to get mortgage finance in these neighborhoods. And because of that, economic mobility is lower in those neighborhoods. And uh, and even today, it's, it's harder to get um, mortgage credit and mortgage credit is more expensive in neighborhoods that were redlined almost a century ago. And when um, not having access to housing, I think that we think of an ability to have upward mobility and the, and the you know American dream may, may be related to a house, which which obviously is explicitly um, considered here. And then in addition, it's just it's just moving up the the social ladder, moving up the income ladder in one generation over another. And uh, and I think that there's there's differences there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's it's really important to think back to before these policies were enacted, homeownership was was uncommon and mortgages were uh, not only hard to come by, but there was there was effectively no standardized mortgage credit before the homeowners loan corporation. And so these policies again created this financial instrument that became over uh, the course of the 20th century the the you know the primary tool for wealth accumulation for most Americans in in home equity and it's important to distinguish 
wealth from income because wealth, you know, assets, savings, home equity, these things can build over time. They can be tapped when income is inconsistent and they can be used, wealth can be used for intergenerational uh, transfers of, um, of socioeconomic status as well through investments in higher education, entrepreneurship, and and subsequent home ownership. So these inequalities that were, again, encouraged by federal policy during the New Deal kind of got locked in place and uh, have grown over time. And that's why, again, we've seen an increase in the inequality at uh, when measured by by home ownership, and why the the racial wealth gap has um, has grown quite a bit over the past um, four decades. So during this time, this was was also when uh, sort of the growth and emergence and growth of of suburbs came about, which I imagine creates a, its own form of uh, exacerbated segregation. How did this tie into uh, the development of suburbs? Uh, that's exactly right. So the all of these policies had strong biases for suburban development. So if you look at the Polk maps, um, and anybody can do this by going to the Mapping Inequality website. Um, they've digitized all the Polk maps that are available in, in, in the archives. So if you go to that website and you know look up pretty much any large city, um, there's a fairly strong geographic gradient of these grades that the appraisers gave, where central cities and downtowns were almost completely given C and D grades, the lowest grades, while the highest grades were generally reserved for far-flung white and wealthy suburban neighborhoods. So this policy kind of was the, the first, again, in kind of encouraging disinvestment in central cities and investment in more suburban neighborhoods. This practice accelerated over the next couple of, uh, of decades through these much larger housing policies like the FHA and the GI Bill, which again encouraged uh, suburban development and mortgage lending in suburbs. And then we started building highways that were connecting bedroom, suburban bedroom communities to job centers again, kind of all of this working together to to lock into place um, suburban uh, kind of affluence and opportunity and privilege um, juxtaposed with urban kind of blight and um, uh, kind of intergenerational poverty. So t- taking this back to um, to New York where where we started uh, and, and you were explaining you know on the map some of the the differences, how closely tied is uh, you know, today's distribution to exactly those redlined maps? Yeah, this is a really fascinating question um, because uh, of the increase in in migration to cities um, that some people are referring to as gentrification um, over the past two or three decades that, uh, as I just mentioned, most HOLC maps gave the lowest grades to downtown neighborhoods. And these are the neighborhoods that, again, since about 1990, some places a little bit earlier, some places a little bit later, um, have seen large influxes of 
um, more affluent residents. And so there is somewhat of a, of a disconnect between these legacy grades in parts of the city. So, for example, most of the lower third of Manhattan was redlined, um, and that's you know, now some of the most valuable real estate on the planet. But at the same time, in parts of central Brooklyn and the South Bronx and southeastern Queens, these places were, were all redlined. Um, and and are still quite disadvantaged today. That they are kind of pockets of racial isolation and concentrated poverty and low levels of economic mobility. Um, and so there's a way in which poverty is kind of intransigent in place, where and affluence can enable mobility um, into into place. It's clear, uh, and you've referred to some of your own research that. Things are, are um, you know, documented now, uh, and, and like you say, the, the maps are all available, and, uh, and the written appraisal reports are available, and so it seems like so much is so clear, and, and you've been able to do so much. Um, I'm interested just in, uh, as you think about the, the work that you do, the work that's being done um, in your field and in your, by your students, what, where, what are people looking at now? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly true that it, there's been an enormous increase in an in interest in housing uh, and housing studies since since the Great Recession, and that's because mortgage lending and foreclosures was so central to understanding um, uh, that uh, that period. Um, and you know now we certainly have uh, you know better data and stronger empirical tools to explore some of these questions. But I really see this more as a story of the field and of growing, um, the, f- the field of housing studies growing um, over time. And there have been a number of really important contributions to this field. Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Matt Desmond highlighting the often exploitative nature of the housing market, the mapping inequality group that I mentioned earlier that digitized these historic documents, the Hulk maps. Um, and you know, I, I also give a lot of credit to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which you know popularized the, a structural understanding of race and the historical roots of contemporary inequalities, which are often again kind of central in, in, in housing. Uh, so the advancement has really been more you know, conceptual than empirical, connecting housing to um, to other aspects of life health and employment and education and in all fairness you know WEB Du Bois was writing about housing as a driver of, of racial inequality in uh, uh, the late uh, late 19th century uh, and sociologists Robert Park and Ernest Burgess created this uh, concentric zone model of, um, of cities, that unfortunately informed the Hulk appraisal patterns that that biased um, investment away from central cities and towards towards suburban development. So this kind of recent resurgence of interest in in housing studies um, is part of a longer scholarly um, uh, legacy of, an, of investigation into the, into the importance of housing in, in, um, in American life. 
So I'm curious too. I mean, we we've talked about uh, sort of the history of how this came about. We've talked about the academic change, uh, and and we've talked about the academic interest. What about on the policy side? So attempts made to address these disparities over time or, or undo some of uh, what what has been done. Can we can we do a, a brief survey of some of that? Sure. I, I think you know my short answer would be that. We have not sincerely tried to remedy the inequalities that were intentionally constructed by policy in the housing realm. Um, you know, unfortunately, today we're we're barely kind of willing to discuss the realities of historical and contemporary um, racism in housing. That said, there have been you know, notable attempts in the past. Uh, perhaps most notable was. Um, George Romney's open communities um, idea. George Romney was the um, the secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development under Richard Nixon, and his open communities idea was um, informed by a uh, a historical understanding of uh, of racial inequality in housing, and he was proposing cutting off funds to municipalities that were encouraging segregation, building affordable housing, and funding mortgages for African Americans in white affluent suburbs, and perhaps most importantly, allowing the federal government to override local zoning restrictions, which were used to um, exclude people of color. Unfortunately, again, he was working for Richard Nixon, who was less interested in this topic, um, so this didn't come to to fruition, but more recently, I'm happy to see a growing um, call for uh, for reparations and other institutional and structural interventions to address racial inequality. Uh, attempts of the past and the and the and the potential momentum that we have in the current period, you know. Uh, leads us to discussions like this. Do, does it also lead to policy considerations? Do you, do you feel that there is uh, more of a likelihood now than than before? It's a really good question, and I think that there um, there are encouraging signs that um, that kind of change may come. Um, there's certainly more uh, kind of public understanding of race, and for that, you know, I have to credit the the movement for Black Lives and the immigrant rights movement for for really kind of pushing the conversation on uh, on race to a more you know, structural place rather than just interpersonal biases. Uh, and so there's you know there's there's possibility that there is uh, support for for the policies that are that I believe are needed. Um, I would have urged uh, or kind of issued two points of caution or as my students say, maybe kind of cynicism. Um, uh, one is that the, the victories that we've seen over the past year or so um, have largely been symbolic victories, painting Black Lives Matter on streets um, or making, uh, you know, as a recently making Juneteenth a national holiday holiday. And these are certainly, you know, I strongly believe that symbols matter a lot, but we are not seeing the corresponding policy interventions that um, are needed to uh, address racial inequality. 
And the second caution I would issue is the the backlash that we're seeing uh, to a more intentional conversation around race and racial inequality and the role of public policy. The cultural backlash to to that conversation has been has been quite severe and quite distressing. So it, as we look ahead to you know, some areas to, to focus on or ways to think about work that the industry can do, policymakers can can think about, what are what are some considerations that, that should be kept in mind, in your opinion? Yeah, so I I think it's still really crucial to keep an eye on the consequences of the the pandemic that you know we're we're close to the finish line in many parts of the United States but the economic impact will be multi-generational and it will be segregated we know that people in communities of color were more directly impacted by the pandemic in the form of mortality and morbidity, and as well as the second order um, effect of the pandemic on job loss and wealth loss. And uh, as we record this uh, this podcast, we're still, I believe, kind of waiting for, for some shoes to drop uh, regarding the end of eviction moratoria, that we could see um, a huge increase in, in evictions and foreclosures, which which can be quite catastrophic for families. You know, as an academic, this is, you know, something of real importance to study. And I think that another kind of area of segregation that has received more attention recently has been a, a kind of nuanced but interesting shift in the geographic scale of segregation that 30 years ago, 50 years ago, the some of the starkest racial lines were were between neighborhoods within within a city. And there's evidence to suggest that over the past couple decades that the uh, the racial line has 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 become sharper in between municipalities and school districts. And uh, uh, that these kind of policy boundaries are playing a, a, a growing role in, in structuring racial racial inequality. Interesting. And so much of that seems to be, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, at the local level. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And um, the, what's happening on the local level is um, is very important to study, and unfortunately, very difficult to study. That getting data on what is happening in local municipalities is hard um, on um, uh, on any kind of scale. Uh, and the United States is, is, we are, you know, quite unique in the amount of power and autonomy that we give to local municipalities over things like zoning um, that, uh, you know, zoning policies have forever been used to exclude um, and, you know, you all are in the multifamily um, housing space, uh, and exclusionary zoning policies have been used to keep multifamily um, housing out of municipalities, uh, thereby keeping lower income people and people of color out of municipalities. Um, and this is a this is a real uh, a real problem, um, and one that again is uh, is is difficult to study. 
Yeah, cer certainly something that uh, that Steve and I see in in our work the the challenges of understanding things at a very local level. So you know one th one thing that's just really striking ab about all of this you know the the redlining the appraisal approach you know everything in there uh, is just how detailed it is and and how in the weeds it is, and I and I wonder like how quickly that was noticed by those who were not implementing it. Right? Was there an immediate contemporary response? To this saying like, hey, I see what's going on. This isn't right. Or did it take some time for it to get noticed outside of outside of the appraisers, outside of those implementing it? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think um, there are two ways, um, at least two ways of, of thinking about it. The first is that we we know that there was resistance to the um, segregationist implementation of these policies that we know that. Um, um, civil rights groups were identifying mortgage discrimination um, bait that was kind of baked into Polk and the FHA and the GI Bill. We know we have record of that um, that was occurring at the time. So people knew that, that African-Americans were being excluded. Um, and of course, racial covenants were pretty explicit about that as well. Um, and the you know, second part, second way I'll answer that question is that the because the impact, the you know, full impact of these policies um, is often multi generational. That to understand the full impact um, can take years, if not decades. Um, and one of the kind of scholarly trends that um, I have been encouraged by is um, is a kind of increasing focus on the intergenerational nature of inequality. Um, and in the United States, a lot of that is driven by um, by housing and by geography, because we have not just kind of encouraged people to separate by race through these policies, but then we've layered so many other drivers of opportunity on top of a of an unequal geography. So we think about things like employment opportunities, educational opportunities. A healthy environment that all of this is kind of geographically disparate um, in a way that correlates with uh, with racial inequality. So you're also, um, as we talked about in in your uh, in your bio, a professor, and you're you're teaching students on a daily basis. So you know, curious with you know much more academic focus on on this as we talked about. What's the reaction of your students? You know, who might be seeing some of this. Uh, for the first time or studying this in depth for the first time? I am uh, really lucky to have um, really amazing students who, um, uh, you know, they're inspired to, to change the world. Um, and I haven't been teaching for, for very long, um, but I have interestingly noticed a um, somewhat profound kind of short-term trend in the, um, in the exposure of um, of students to some of these ideas about racial inequality that 
even five years ago, um, I felt like I was getting more uh, surprise um, among students um, uh, than among students that I've, I've, um, um, I've had more recently. So I think that this is some um, anecdotal evidence that the kind of education that these these students are being exposed to before they they come to my class um, uh, is uh, is richer in this way when we talk about racial inequality, and I think students feel uh, feel two ways, and I know this from my course evaluations that they um, kind of have, have two ways of thinking about uh, about the way that I think about this is you know I think they they certainly appreciate the the candor you know with which I tend to discuss these topics. Um, that's something that they're not getting in every class. Um, but on the other side, they they very much want solutions to these problems, not like right now or or better yet yesterday. Um, and solutions are really hard. Um, and again, they're they're multi generational. If we think about the impact of redlining, you know, these policies are now almost a century old, um, and undoing the damage that was done by these policies. Um, is going to take a massive investment in a massive um, amount of time. And, you know, patience is something that uh, I personally struggle with. So I um, understand it in my, my students as well, especially when it comes to topics as important as, um, as racial inequality. Well, well, I feel like um, I've been a student here today, as as I've learned a lot, and uh, and I think that, as you say, the decisions that are made in in the present, you know, they, they have immediate impacts, but they also can have impacts that that last decades and even centuries. And so, Jacob, I think it's been really fantastic to have you here and have us all kind of get new perspective on this. So, thanks for being here. Thank you again for for having me. This has been great. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.